we are so privileged uh, to have an Indigenous culture. Most worlds, most countries in the world have lost mm. their Indigenous culture and we still have something which is, which is beautiful and rich and unique and it is a, a treasure that I want to all, all Australians to be so proud of and for all Australians to see as part of our, our proud Australian identity. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. In the early 1980s, I remember watching Rob DiCostello running a race through the middle of Sydney. At one point, a teenager on the nearby path tried to run alongside him. The kid was sprinting at top speed, but couldn't keep up with Deke for even 100 metres. Deke shot onto the Australian running scene as a 20-year-old in 1977, winning the Sydney City to surf in 41 minutes. In 1981, he ran the Fukuoka Marathon in 208, a time that stood as the world record for three years. In 1986, he won the Boston Marathon in 2.07, which is just a shade over three minutes per kilometre and still stands as the Australian marathon record. He won the Commonwealth Games marathons in 1982 and 1986 before retiring in 1993. Deke has served as director of the Australian Institute of Sport and has founded the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. A couple of years ago, I took up marathon running as an Indigenous Marathon Project ambassador. One of the great joys was getting to run with and get advice from Rob, who's one of my childhood heroes. When I broke three hours for the marathon, he sent me a text message saying, welcome to the two hours and something club, which was pretty kind, given that his current personal best is about three quarters of an hour quicker than my current personal best. He's generous friendly and hardworking. Rob, thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. Tell me about how you got into running. What's your memory of your, your first runs? Um, hi, Andrew, and, and thanks for the opportunity to come in and, and have a chat. And it's always fun talking to a, another another running enthusiast. So uh, it's great to be able to, to come in. Um, my, my earliest recollections of running are, are being dragged out of bed at some ungodly hour in the morning by my father when I was about 12 or 13 and and, uh, and dragged for runs around the streets of Kew down in Melbourne where I grew up um, and I hated it. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't off to a good start but uh, my dad was one of the very early pioneers of, of fitness and, and fun running and, and running. Um, he knew that he had a a high risk for heart disease. His mum died of a heart attack in her late 40s 
and uh, and back then, you know, sort of running and exercise was what he thought was an insurance policy. And back then, there's also the belief that if you ran a marathon, you'd never have a heart attack. So <laughs> I think that was that was a big incentive for for my my dad to get into running. And um, I'm the eldest of of seven children. And my dad obviously decided that uh, running by himself was good, but running with his eldest son would be better. And and uh, and he used to drag me out. And, and then I got into running at school, I think, you know, predominantly, so I didn't have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and go for a run with dad. Um, and, and it became very much a, a passion uh, after that when I settled in with a great group of, of uh, guys at Burke Hall and Xavier College where I went through my education and met Pat Clohesse, who went on to become my coach all the way through my career. He was a history teacher at Xavier, and um, uh, and you know, sort of um, all everything that I did really started from my dad not giving up, <laughs> from persevering and uh, not taking no for an answer. And despite my kickings and screamings and and tears and complaints, he. He really, you know, sort of forced me to, to get out there and, and, and get running. And uh, it's an interesting message because, uh, you know, so so often, um, you know, parents uh, have, a I think, a, uh, a propensity to, to back off sometimes from forcing and pushing their kids to do things. Um, if my dad had have backed off, I never would have gone on to, to do what I did as, a, as an athlete. How's that shaped you as a parent and uh, in how you, you encourage your kids into sport? Uh, do you take a, a sort of a, a tiger, more of a tiger dad approach to, uh, to sport <laughs> with your kids? Yeah, look, I, I, I probably do, um, or I've tried to. Um, you know, I remember my, my eldest uh, daughter, uh, eldest child, I've got four children, and my eldest is, um, is now 33. And I remember her as a youngster, you know, dragging her out for for runs and bike rides and things, and she was complaining. And I remember her saying to me, "Look, Dad, do you expect me to exercise every day?" <laughs> and I said, "Absolutely, absolutely. It's got to become part of your your lifestyle." And one of my my great uh, memories of of Krista was when she went on to win the the cross country at at Radford, where she went to her high school. And uh, she'd had an injury and she'd been sick and hadn't done much training. Uh, but she came out on the day and, uh, and pushed herself really hard and came down to a close finish and she won. And she came over to me afterwards and she said, Dad, you know the difference between me and those other kids? I know how to hurt myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a, a little bit of, of pain and pleasure mixed in there somewhere. So I think, you know, we, uh, we have to set... Our, our guidelines with our with our kids. Um, I'm a big advocate of a healthy, active lifestyle. I've been a huge campaigner uh, trying to address sedentary lifestyle and obesity and junk food with with our children. And um, I think it is really important that that parents are firm. And and you know we're all very busy, um, especially with you know so most parents, most families working, both parents working. Uh, there's a lot of distractions, a lot of pressure on on kids and on parents, and it's easy for us not to want to have that that argument and that fight with our kids when we get home. Um, but you know, we we need to be firm. We need to get the kids off the computers and the TV. We need to get them out exercising. We need to try to encourage them strongly to participate and engage in in sport. 
because sport has so many wonderful attributes to, to teach our ch children. And we all know that, that it's those, those things that we learn at an early age, uh, you know, before we're out of primary school, that, that are things that we take with us for the rest of our life. So I, I, I'm very appreciative of, uh, of my dad's uh, not giving up and persevering and, uh, and, and dragging me out, not just because of what I did as an athlete, but I think it also laid the foundations for a lot of my personality and character traits as well. Yeah, there's a great maxim that you don't rise to the level of your hopes, you fall to the level of your training, uh, and uh, and you clearly just put in huge amounts of training. How much of that did you enjoy, and how much felt like work when you were uh, when you were really hard at it training for marathons? Oh, look, it's it's all it's all work. I mean, um, when I was at my peak, um, you know, through the 80s and early 90s. Um, you know, I'm running twice a day, seven days a week, uh, running 200 to 220 kilometres a week. Um, every second day at least is a hard session. And, and those hard sessions are sessions you come home and you're absolutely, you know, gutted. Um, you, you know, you can feel nauseous for hours afterward, after a hard hill session or track session. Um, you you know you can't eat dinner because you're just you know you're just uh, not, not able to stomach the food. Uh, the long runs, two long runs a week, a 30k and a 35k on Wednesday and Sunday, and for the rest of the day you're exhausted. Um, so it's, it is hard work. Um, the good times come with the sense of satisfaction that you have through hard training, you know, through getting something done, and and I got as much satisfaction from my my long training runs and my hard training sessions at the end of my career as what I did at the very start and I think it's important to be able to look back and, and feel proud you know you don't have to go around and you don't you know get your, your picture on the front page of the paper for a training session but you you look at yourself in the mirror when you go to bed or you get up in the morning and and you you know that uh, that you, you you've done something which is hard and satisfying and and obviously that feeling is is compounded significantly in in your major events um, you know getting selected for your first Australian team um, you know marching for for the country under the Olympic flag um, you know running running a personal best at the Olympic Games um, let alone in having an opportunity to stand on the victory dais as the Australian flag goes up and the and our national anthems played um, you know those are the 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 very special moments that I guess um, help to make all of that hard work worthwhile what was it that set you apart from others? Because uh, you don't have the natural physique of a runner. I mean, you, you, you put you put you in. Uh, Thanks, Andrew. That's that's very nicely put. <laughs> no, I mean you're uh, you're, you're short, shorter than many of the uh, the, the to top runners these days. You're not yeah. sort of one of these lanky uh, Dennis Cometo, uh, uh, Elliot Kipchoge kind of kind of figures. Um, yeah. So was it then the fact that you just pushed yourself so darn hard? Um, look, I, I think um, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, obviously, I did have 
a physical ability to, to run. You know, even as a junior, I was setting national records for 3K on the track, 5K. I won a lot of national junior cross countries and national titles. So, you know, you don't do that without having some some natural ability. But you're right, my my physique is uh, is a long way from being what a, a talent ID scientist would, would profile for a marathon runner or a distance runner. Um, and and I had to work incredibly hard, but I I had a, a physiology that uh, that responded to, to training. Um, you know, distance runners have a very different physio- physiological talent to sprinters and 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 ball sports people who are just have that natural agility and speed and hand eye foot eye coordination. Uh, distance runners, the ability that that we have, the top ones, is that you respond to the training, and you can have two people doing exactly the same training, and one person will respond really quickly, and the other person will respond slowly, and and I was fortunate that my physiology responded quickly, and also you know I was I was physically strong, uh, I was able to to endure hard training and high volumes and and I was incredibly consistent um, so you know from a physical and physiological perspective I, I think I had some some ticks in those boxes um, but probably the most important thing was the psychological and the the attitudinal perspective um, you know I as I said was the eldest of seven kids I'm the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son in a family that goes back to the early days of settlement in Australia. Uh, my ancestors came out from Switzerland and and set up uh, vineyards and established some of the first vineyards in the Yarra Valley in Victoria. Uh, my great-grandfather was one of the first recipients of an international award for, produ- for wine that he produced in the Yarra Valley back then. And I was brought up um, one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me was a, a belief that um, I was I was destined to to do good things and special things, and um, and I had that that drive and that perseverance. Also, I had the the courage to have a go, born of a realization that if all things fell over, then, well, you know, I, I can always go back home. I've always got my family. I've always got my parents. So so I was prepared to, you know, migrate or move over to the US after after the Los Angeles Olympics in 84 when I was favourite. I ended up finishing fifth. I realised that I had to make some changes and my family and I relocated to Colorado um, and, you know, we arrived in a, a brand-new city, um, and and set up a, a home and training groups and everything from scratch, and you know you need to have that that you know, uh, preparedness to go out on a limb and to to take risks and take chances, um, and you do that because you know if all else falls apart, if everything fails, well you know you you've got somewhere to go. You know you, you're not you're not going to be stranded. And you've uh, had a range of coaches, Pat Clohessy, uh, Dick, Dick Telford, and, and then been a, a coach as, as well to, uh, to, to many athletes, particularly uh, the Australian Institute of Sport and through the Indigenous Marathon Project. Uh, what have you learned about what makes uh, a good coach-athlete relationship work? Yeah, look, I've only had the one coach really, just 
just Pat Pat Clohesse, who coached me all the way through my my career. Uh, Dick Dick Telford is a, a dear friend and a, a great um, uh, partner. He's a director on our Indigenous Marathon Foundation board, and we continue to work closely together. Um, and he was he. Uh, had a huge input into my training as an exercise physiologist. He was head of the sports science and exercise physiology at the AIS where I was working at the time. And, um, uh, and you know, we've worked incredibly closely over the years. Um, but from a coaching perspective, um, you know, Pat, Pat was uh, and still is an incredibly generous and um and empathetic and uh has a, a deep personal relationship with all of his athletes um you know as a good coach that uh, or as a good coach athlete relationship that your your coach and your athlete um, are there to get the best for the individual um you know as a coach you're not there for your own your own glory you're, you're there and you and the athlete can have that trust in the in the coach knowing that they can talk to them about anything and and whatever the coach believes is the best thing is what the coach will say mm. and and uh, and Pat is one of those uh, perceptive and insightful individuals born of his own running experience and observations of the the great New Zealand distance runners when he was one of the first Australians to go on a US scholarship to um, university over there and socialize and travel through the through Europe with the uh, with you know Helberg and Snell and all of those great great um, uh, Lydia distance mm, runners mm. of the era and and Pat was able to to take a lot of the wisdom that he gained and and apply that in a in a very positive supportive and empathetic way with with me and we you know we still have a, a very dear and a very close relationship and um, and I think you know I was really really very lucky to you know stumble across someone like Pat who happened to be my history teacher at school you know and and it's funny how the cards fall and and uh, how sort of amazing things happen fortuitously absolutely and I want to ask you about one aspect of your uh, your running career, which is the fact that uh, you were the world record holder without knowing it. So during the period you held the world record for the marathon, 1981 to 1984, uh, most people thought that Salazar's uh, New York marathon was the was the record. Uh, they remeasure the course in 1985. They discovered that the New York course has been um, 150 or so metres short. Uh, and retrospectively, you're placed in as the world record holder for that period. But by this time, your record has been bettered. How did that make you feel? Um, look, um, probably in hindsight these days, probably more disappointed than I was at the time. Um, at the time... Um, you know, world records were important, but the most important thing for me was to run the fastest that I could and to be the best athlete that I could possibly be. Um, and that was a, a competition against myself. Um, you have no control over what other people do or how other people perform. Um, and the only person you do control is yourself. Um, so at the time, you know, I had a great race in Fukuoka, uh, out and back course, um, and and just missed 
Alberto's time by five seconds, in which he ran in the New York City Marathon. Um, and and then there was you know a huge amount of interest and controversy because Fukuoka was out and back. New York's a point to point course. Um, and even, you know, sort of a lot of people were saying, well, you know, you can't run a world record or world fastest time on a one-way course because of issues about wind and, and gradient and all those sorts of things. So a lot of people still considered my time to be the unofficial world record or fastest time. Um, and then when subsequently after Steve Jones broke Alberto's time, uh, he broke it in the Chicago Marathon, New York came out and, and fessed up to the fact that uh, they, they actually knew it was short but hadn't actually said anything. Um, and, you know, I mean, in hindsight, it would, have, it would have cost me a fair bit because all of the elite runners today and at the time have uh, bonuses and, uh, and, you know, incentives built into your, your contracts with shoe companies and, and others. Uh, obviously, as a world record holder, your your negotiating power for appearance fees and and events is much higher. So you know, in in hindsight, looking back, it probably cost me a fair bit. Um, but at the time, I was always just focused on the next race, and and I figured that well, if I can run two eight eighteen in Fukuoka, then I can run faster mm. somewhere else. And and I was still relatively young. I ran, you know, ran that time in Fukuoka when I was about 24. Um, so I was, you know, sort of still very, very much focused on on running faster and and focused on the next race rather than looking back and getting caught up with stuff that I had no control over. Hmm. Uh, you uh, retired from running in uh, the early 1990s, but uh, not from uh, hardcore sport. Uh, you moved into uh, an Okinawan martial art, Goju Ryu, uh, and earned a black belt in that. Uh, what made you choose to, to make the transition from running to martial arts? <laughs> um, I, um, I was starting to, my body was starting to have a few niggles. From the from the training, and it was starting to I think you know sort of show signs of of wear and tear, and I knew towards the you know the, the mid 90s or early 90s that that my my ability to do the training was was limited, and and I had that wonderful opportunity to transition out of out of elite marathon running into administration by uh, taking up the position as director of the AIS in the early 90s. Um, I was still training and, and working as director uh, up until Barcelona in 92, where I, I still made the Olympic team for that. But after Barcelona, I shifted very much to, to, you know, sort of putting my training and my running, certainly the elite aspirations aside. Um, and I guess having reached the heights that I had as an athlete, um, there wasn't much much for me to go to as a runner you know I mean I'd already I, I knew I wasn't going to run any PBs uh, so I had to find something else yeah and uh, my my uh, wife Teresa had done a little bit of martial arts uh, I knew I needed to do something to improve my flexibility I was you know sort of I was strong and up but I was tight and I think that was contributing to some of the the lower back and other issues that I was having and um, I've always been fascinated by the Japanese uh, samurai work ethic and Bushido and, and the culture. And even as an athlete, uh, you know, the Japanese marathon runners were, were incredible in their attitude and their toughness. And it was something I always admired and respected. 
and um, you know I grew up in the whole Bruce Lee era and and all that sort of stuff. So the, when you know when the when we Teresa and I started talking about martial arts and she'd done some martial arts before, done some karate, we um, you know we both went along and um, and started the the, the Gojiru. And uh, and that's been an incredible passion for me now because I I've seen my progress. Like you know I get I get satisfaction from uh, from seeing improvements and I from challenging myself. And as a marathon runner and a, a martial artist, they don't normally go hand in hand. <laughs> most mar- most marathon runners can't touch their toes. Um, a lot of them struggle to get past their knees. Um, whereas, whereas most martial artists have incredible agility and flexibility, mm. and uh, so it's been a, a huge challenge for me. But uh, it's something which I've I've really enjoyed and embraced, and have gone on and uh, just um, in 2016 was graded to fourth dan black belt. So, uh, and and now you know Teresa and I have a, a little club, and we you know we train, and um, and it's it's. It's very rewarding for, for me, I guess, from a, a coaching or from a being a sensei and, and helping other people improve mm. and, and, and see see their bodies change and develop, but also from my own personal enjoyment and satisfaction of, of knowing that even though I'm approaching 60, I'm still getting faster and stronger and, and more agile and more flexible than what I've been for the first you know 50 or 60 years of my life. Mm. Mm. In 2003, uh, serious bushfires swept through Canberra and uh, you lost not only your home but also a range of possessions, including some of your medals. Uh, how, does, how did that shape you? Uh, it, was, it was like getting knocked by a brick out of, out of the window of somewhere. You're walking along a street and all of a sudden you have this massive thing that just knocks you for a six. Um, you know, life was was good. Uh, we, you know, we were down the coast having a great time, and and towards the end of the school holidays, back in two thousand and three, and then all of a sudden you realise that you've lost everything. Um, you know, you've lost all of your not just your house and your clothes and all of your belongings and your car and and all of the, the artwork and the memorabilia and the medals and everything that you've had a lifetime accumulating and collecting because you like them, you love mm. them, some of them, and they were all gone in a heartbeat. So it was uh, a very personally challenging period and it strips you back to your core and you question and you ask yourself, you know, why are you here? And as a, as a father, my first and a husband, my first responsibility was to my children and, and my wife. And you need to protect and provide and, and support them who are also going through exactly the same mm. situation and circumstance. Um, and the things that I learnt from that were invaluable. You know, I learnt the importance of, of family and friends because without family and friends, we had nothing. We had nowhere to sleep. Uh, we had... Uh, you know, no food to eat. We'd we'd lost absolutely everything, and our family and our friends uh, came out in force and 
and and supported us, whether it was just a, a phone call from someone weeks later saying, how are you going? I was just thinking of you, you know, just wanted to check in, or whether it was, was you know, providing a roof over your head for, for the family to to stay under under someone else's home for mm. for months on end until we were able to sort out all of the insurance and find somewhere else to live and then you go out and you start afresh you know you buy new clothes you buy new furniture you buy you you know fit out a house similar to what I did in Boulder when when I went there yeah. so I'd been there done it before but uh, but this was very different and and um, for me probably the hardest thing was losing a lot of our our family uh, possessions and things, which as the eldest son, I was entrusted to look after. Mm. And as I said, you know, my my ancestors, the Dicastellas of the last 150 years, had done amazing things, and and I had books that my my great grandfather had written and edited notes in the margins and. Um, a whole host of furniture and other things that had been passed down to to me, mm. not because they were mine, but because they belonged to our family, and they were all gone. Um, so you know, I um, you know I had uh, probably those things were the hardest things to lose. The medals, you know, and and the material things were probably less significant because I never ran for medals. I, I ran for my own sense of achievement and, and challenge. And, um, uh, and even the other material things that I collected, even artwork today, I still, you know, we had beautiful paintings and artwork that I collected from around Australia and overseas. And, and I still today, years and years on, still find it difficult to emotionally and financially invest in material things because uh, I know that they can be gone in a heartbeat. You uh, started the Indigenous Marathon project uh, around around that at that time, which is now the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. How did that uh, come about? Well, I, I've um, I've had a, another charity, Smart Start for Kids, which has been operating uh, for the best part of um, you know fifteen or twenty years now, trying to address kids' obesity. So I've always been after I left the director of the institute role and and moved from the elite to to community focus always been trying to to give back I guess you know mm. I mean I was Australian of the year in 1983 and and that was a wonderful um, accolade and a, and with that comes a responsibility to to contribute back um, and and the, the the children's health was uh, a big passion for a long time but now um, you know I had a phone call from uh, a fellow Matt Long in Sydney who was a uh, advert, had an advertising production company and and he wanted to do a documentary. Uh, I think he was one of these restless advertising you know people who who made a reasonable had a good business uh, but wanted to create something of significance rather than just a, a TV ad. And he had this idea of of doing a documentary following a group of Aboriginal men uh, to see whether they had the same running ability, long distance running ability as the great Africans and it was a really interesting question and we did some research together and looked at stories and um, and and then we kicked off the the running to America in 2010 with four four Aboriginal men from Central Australia and and uh, and Matt and his uh, his his team 
did an amazing documentary over that following that journey through 2010, and uh, and that was really the um, the realization that uh, that you know sort of I could use my what I did as a runner. Uh, Possibly to try to identify a, another another great Australian marathon runner, and and that was what you know we were hoping for back then, but it was really the first time I'd had any face-to-face experience with Indigenous Australia, and and working with the two guys from Alice Springs and one from a little community up in Arnhem Land in Manangreta and another another fella from Kununurra just in the Kimberleys over the the NT WA border. That was the first time I'd been out to communities and the first time I'd spent time, you know, I, I spent more time with Africans than I did with Indigenous Australians. I knew more about African culture and African food than I did about our Australian Indigenous culture and, mm. and life. And um, whilst it was fascinating, and I've been to, you know, lots of third world countries and I'd seen pretty horrific things over my life, I was um, I was really you know uh, ashamed I guess as an Australian who's represented the country at Olympic Games and things and and then to to go out to some of these places and to to see firsthand and to and to hear stories and to to see what uh, what circumstances our indigenous people live in and the challenges that they face on a day-to-day basis and and working with those four guys through 2010 um you know i i grew to have an an incredible appreciation of them individually and of our indigenous culture and and our our people indigenous people and and standing on the finish line in 2010 in new york in november when each one of those four guys crossed the finish line um the incredible sense of of personal pride and achievement and accomplishment that radiated from from their very being even though they'd just run 42k and and none of them had really done enough running to finish the marathon but but something kept them going and drove them on to to finish and and they were physically exhausted but they were exuding this amazing aura and and pride and I think it was that moment that I realised that uh, the marathon had, and this this concept of running, not only from a chronic disease, you know, we all know exercise is great for heart disease and diabetes and renal health, which are the three huge killers of our Indigenous, and not just Indigenous, but all, all people. Um, so, you know, the running and the exercise was, was a wonderful way to address some of those. But what I felt, through that year of travelling the country was that something even more insidious than chronic disease was afflicting our Indigenous people and that was that was a hopelessness. That was a, you know, why should I bother doing anything? There's nothing for me in this, you know, in my future. There's nothing to live for. I have nothing to aspire to, to doing. So it's a day-by-day existence and and a lot of them give up. You know, a hell of a lot of them give up. They've got nothing to live for. And when you feel as though you're worthless and you have no value, you'll never make an effort to look after yourself. You'll never make an effort to finish your school. You'll never make an effort to, to get a job, to get off the smokes, to, to you know, stop drinking. Uh, because, you know, why would you bother if you're not worth anything? 
because that's the easy path. You just slide down and become a rubbish person. And and the running made a difference. The running changed the, the way those four men saw themselves. Um, and, and that was the start because I realised then that we had a, an opportunity to use what, what I knew intimately to, to make a difference to what I think is one of the great challenges that we have as a, as a nation. And that is, is uh, for us as a nation to be proud, to be you know, proud of this thing which is a national treasure, which is our, our indigenous culture. We are so privileged uh, to have an indigenous culture. Most worlds, most countries in the world have lost mm. their indigenous mm. culture. And we still have something which is which is beautiful and rich and unique, and it is a, a treasure that I want to all all Australians to be so proud of, and for all Australians to see as part of our our proud Australian identity, not something that we look away from. Uh, and you know, our Marathon Foundation and the Marathon Project have a, a huge opportunity to to make a difference because everyone knows the marathon's hard. Everyone knows, you know, you say you run a marathon and people go, oh, wow, you know, they're, they're in awe because the marathon is synonymous with struggle and triumph and, and achievement. And when we say, okay, well, we take a group of six Indigenous men and six women who've never run before and in six months they go from not running to finishing the biggest marathon in the world in the biggest city in the world, uh, people, people change their perception of indigenous resilience and achievement and capacity, and and hopefully not only the the runners themselves, you can imagine how proud they are, but but the the families and the communities and the whole country should be incredibly proud of of what uh, our 65 graduates. So in the last since 2010 through 2016, we've now got 65 graduates. Uh, who who had never run seriously before. Most of them had never run before. Uh, in the early days, they didn't even know what a marathon was. They didn't know how far it was. They never heard of a fun run. Uh, and and now we have our graduates coming back and starting their own training groups and and passing on not mm. just the training and the knowledge that they've learnt through you know come back with a, a, a cert three in fitness and a, a level one coaching with Athletics Australia so they have the skills but the personal knowledge and they want to share not just the training sessions and the and the participation in the runs but how that makes you feel and uh, and that's why it's it's just been um, an amazing journey over the last seven years and uh, it has you know it captured the the spirit of Indigenous Australians around the country, and it's simple. You know, I, I keep on saying, look, you know, we, we just put one foot in front of the other. You know, <laughs> if you can take one step, well, you can take another, and you take another and another, and and you keep on going, and eventually you'll finish the marathon, and you'll be a marathoner, and and then you know that is a is a, a badge, it is a a medal that you will have forever, and and you will learn more about yourself in that last 10K than you will in almost anything else that you do because you get to a point where it's just you and you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, what? I, I want to stop. What, what was I thinking? Why did I start this, this thing called the marathon? But you have. You've started it. And when you, when you start something, you've got to finish it. 
Yeah, my uh, my memory of the crowds in New York was uh, I I just loved them for the, about the first half of the race, and then as they get about five deep, when you come first onto you come onto First Avenue, as you come onto Manhattan, and then you come back down Fifth Avenue, it just didn't matter that there were thousands <laughs> of people out there, and if you've got your name in your shirt, they're shouting your name. You just want the pain to stop. <laughs> Uh, but, but of the 65 uh, graduates that you've had through, uh, are, there, are there a couple whose stories particularly sit in your mind? Oh, look, there's, there's so many, Andrew. <laughs> uh, each and every one of them have an incredibly powerful story, and that's why we select them. Hmm. You know, we don't select them on their running ability. We select them on their, their purpose and how strong their purpose is. And, 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 you know, we're doing our tryouts at the moment, so we're travelling around the country recruiting for, for 2017. Uh, last year we had over 180 applicants for the 12 positions. And each one of those applicants have to do a, a, a short time trial. The women run 3K, the men run 5. But the most important thing is the interview that they do, the one-on-one interview. And in that interview they need to, to demonstrate to us that they have a purpose that when they hit the wall at 30k their purpose will be what keeps them going and and uh, again it is a purpose born of horrific suffering and dysfunction and tragedy and things that can be flipped to make it unstoppable Uh, and and that's what they get selected on Um, so and then we teach them through that journey with us in IMP to use that purpose for the rest of their life. And we continue to work with them as, as graduates. Our, our new program, Front Runners, uh, provides them with grants and opportunities to, to start their own programs and, and address the issues that their passionate, their purpose focuses on. Um, so, um, you know, the stories, I mean, I've got three, three of our graduates now working full time with me here in Canberra in our, in our head office. Um, you know, Nadine Hunt, who in 2011 was one of the first women in our squad to, to finish New York. And she was working up in Cairns um, in a butcher part-time, selling sausages and, and things. Uh, and and we offered her a position heading up and starting up our, our Deadly Fun Run program. And she moved from Cairns, left her family up there, drove down to Canberra and has done an incredible job driving our our deadly fun runs and we've now expanded our deadly fun runs to to uh, into a new program called deadly running australia that provides coaching and accreditation to to indigenous people across the country that organizes running festivals and 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 fun runs and we have our national deadly fun run championships at uluru each year and and that's just going to get bigger and bigger Mm. and you know Nadine is the one who's pioneered that and and is making such a huge contribution on a national scale Um, Adrian Dodson Shaw has just come on board late last year as our new head coach and manager of IMP and um, you know Adrian ran New York back in 2014 um, and from Broome uh, son of of incredibly strong family of uh, Pat Dodson and Mick Dodson and, and, you know, Adrian was the first Indigenous Australian ever to go to the North Pole. I took him up there in 2015 and he ran a marathon at the North Pole in temperatures and wind chill that got down to minus 50 degrees Celsius. 
he did it from Broome. He'd never seen snow before, and he went to the <laughs> North Pole and, and ran ran a, his second marathon. It took him eight and a half hours, wow. uh, but he ran you know virtually nonstop except for coming into the tent to change his clothes and to, to defrost and and everything. And um, and now to have Adrian working with with us here in our foundation um, is is something I'm incredibly proud of and managing and head coach of, of the IMP program. And then our third graduate is uh, Elsie Syriat. Elsie's from Thursday Island, up, way up in the Torres Strait Island. And she's just come down uh, late last year to head up our, our program, working with all of our graduates, uh, our front runners program. And Elsie trained for her marathon on Thursday Island, which is five kilometres around. And she'd never lived anywhere else except Thursday Island. And she has had a huge impact on changing the, the attitudes and the behaviours of, of the island people and the, the local people up there on Thursday Island where they have epidemic levels of diabetes and, and obesity. And now they have 30, 40 people turning up to their regular training groups that Elsie and Harold, another one of the, the graduates from Thursday Island, started back in 2014. So, you know, to have Elsie now also commit to relocating... Uh, down here to, to Canberra. A big change from Thursday Island to Canberra. <laughs> Lucky we're in the middle of a, a hot spell of, of weather. <laughs> but when she came down, it was like, you know, sort of 10 degrees or something. And I thought, oh, I hope, hope she lasts. But um, again, you know, they're not doing it because they, you know, they, they're looking for, for jobs or whatever. They're doing it because they believe that it's important. They believe that they can make a, a difference. And I'm so proud of each of those graduates and all of the other, you know, the other 62 graduates that we've got um, are just amazing young men and women. I could go on and tell you stories about each and every one of them. You know, Charmaine Patrick from Hermansburg. Uh, you know, Charmaine was the first um, Western Arunda woman. Uh, Hermansburg's about um, 120k or 100k outside of Alice Springs and obviously famous for Albert Namajira and, and things, but huge health and, and, uh, and social issues out there. And Charmaine is a single mother of two young boys, uh, started, he was inspired by, by Charlie Ma, who's, who's family, and, and she started running and, you know, she, she's like, like just a, a low-range uh, machine you just put it into low range and she just goes she just goes and goes and goes and, and, and doesn't stop and when we went back to Hermansburg to do Charmaine's return to community graduation after she finished New York one of the, the old men one of the elders came over to me afterwards and he said you know before New York Charmaine was just Charmaine since New York Charmaine is now a name and everyone tells the story of Charmaine so you know um, these these young men and women, and they're all under thirty. They're still yes. they're still young. So the the future and the impact that they can continue to have is uh, is limitless, only bordered by their courage and by the opportunity and the support that we give them. Striking stories. So let me wrap up by asking you a, a few questions I ask each of my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Believe in yourself and and don't stop. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, probably a little bit more cynical. Uh, everyone's not there to help you. When are you most happy? 
when I'm with my family. <laughs> What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, look after what you eat and exercise every day. Do you have uh, any guilty pleasures? Uh, chocolate, um, coffee, uh, good single malt scotch whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty serious about your coffee. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Remember you uh, you introduced me to uh, to coffee with now was it butter you put put in it or yeah some yeah sort of like a... a bulletproof coffee which is uh, and and that's all part of uh, my approach to healthy eating which is getting off sugars uh, reducing carbohydrate um, and eating a lot more fat. Nat, uh, natural animal fat and and protein, uh, which is sort of uh, along the our ancestral mm. eating, which man has evolved from for for hundreds of thousands of years, rather than our agricultural uh, diets of the last ten thousand years. Yes, yeah. What person or, or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, the the tough times. Uh, it's only it's only through hardship that we really find out who we are. Um, you know, we should embrace the disappointments and the failures because they're the things that teach us the most about ourselves. And I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, finally ask uh, Australia's marathon record holder for a listener who's just thinking about starting out and running. What tips can you give? Um. Just, just get out and, and train consistently. Train, start off slow. People who haven't done much long-distance running always run too fast. So you have to run at a pace where you're, you're not huffing and puffing and, and don't try to keep up with other people. Just run your own pace, uh, you know, like Charmaine. Put it into low range and just, and just shuffle along and, and be patient and be consistent. Your body is a, an incredible organism that will respond in a wonderful way if you look after it and, and you're kind to it. So, like, don't be too kind. Like, remember my, my dad dragging me out of bed and, and getting me out running, but, but also don't, you know, don't beat yourself up if, uh, you know, if you miss a couple of sessions or something. But the body responds to stress recovery uh, and also consistency. So, so be patient, but be consistent. Rob DeCastillo, thanks for taking the time to join us in the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. A pleasure. <laughs> thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast this week. If you enjoyed this episode, would you mind taking a moment just to let your friends know, maybe through Facebook, Twitter, an email to a long-lost friend, or some other, some other way of spreading the word. Next week, I'll be back with another guest to discuss living a healthier, happier and more ethical life.